Well, it is good to have you here this weekend, those of you here in the room and those of you online. If you're online, uh, glad to have you with us. I understand we've had some issues online, so if all of a sudden I freeze up, I, it's the internet. <laughs> Except if it happens in here, it's me. So it is good to have you here. I'm really grateful that you're with us today, uh, whether in the room or online, because there are so many things in so many places you could be and do this weekend to carve out an hour to be here. And I was thinking about on a weekend like this, uh, when there are so many opportunities, what kind of people actually come to church or show up uh, for church? And I, and I really kind of thought maybe it's, it's one of three categories. There are some of you here because you just can't imagine not being able to be together with the body of Christ, lift up the name of Jesus, look into the living word of God and to be transformed. You can't wait to be here. Yeah, okay. So there are some of you here that got up this morning and saw that it rained, canceled your 4th of July problems, issues, your, your plans and programs. So you thought, well, let's go to church. We're grateful to be your last resort. Uh, glad that you're here. And some of you are here for other reasons. Guilt. Uh, you don't want to be here. You're forced to be here. And in your mind, you're saying, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Let me out of this place. Let freedom ring. I don't want to be here. And let me just say, hopefully this isn't terribly painful. Within about 40 minutes, you can say free at last. Thank God Almighty, you're free at last and go on and celebrate. But I am glad that you are here. Um, this weekend, and this weekend's a big weekend, and just a real quick belated shout out to our friends, brothers and sisters to the north, um, a late happy Canada Day, uh, July 1st was Canada Day, as many of you know, I find it interesting, when you ask people in the United States about Canada Day, what you'll often hear is they'll say, well, that's, that's Canada's 4th of July, well, no, it's not. The 4th of July is a date on the calendar, and they have one, too. It's their 1st of July. And so, well, I didn't mean that. What I mean, it's, a, it's like their Independence Day. Well, no, it's, it's not. A simple Google search will show you that. It's, it's not their Independence Day. I think what happened was Britain was concerned that maybe Canada would follow the example of the neighbors to the south, neighbors spelled with an O-U. And in order to keep them in line with Britain, they decided, let's just throw a birthday party for them and tell them it's their birthday, and they'll be satisfied. So Canada... Happy birthday late. And those of us in the United States, 246 years ago, yesterday, on July 2nd, 1776, there was a decision made by Congress that the 13 colonies would no longer be subject or subordinate to the monarch of Britain. And so actually, Independence Day is July 2nd. That was when the decision was made. It was two days later on July 4th that the Declaration of Independence was uh, adopted. And, uh, and so that's why we celebrate that. What's interesting is between July 2nd, when it was decided, and July 4th, when the document was made, there was July 3rd, today. And on July 3rd, 1776, John Adams wrote these words to his wife, Abigail. He wrote this the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. What I find interesting is that line in the middle where he says it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting, and I do not believe 
that the United States of America is equal to or synonymous with the kingdom of God. Not at all. But I love my country. And I am grateful, as imperfect as America is, as far as it is from God and seeming to strip, slip farther away. I wish we would quit saying, God bless America. And I wish we'd start saying, America bless God. But as much as that is the case, I am grateful to live in a country where I have the freedom to join together with you today to lift up the name of Jesus without fear of being arrested. That I can own a Bible without worry that someone's going to break into my home and, and, and confiscate it. Or and I can gather to study that word of God without worry about persecution. I am grateful for that and I recognize that we have brothers and sisters around the globe who do not experience this freedom and we so take it for granted. And so... I celebrate Independence Day as a citizen of the United States, and I will do that this weekend. And while I do that, there is a much greater independence that I celebrate every day. And that's the freedom that I found in Jesus Christ. And there's a greater citizenship that I hold on to, and that is my citizenship in heaven. And there's a greater kingdom that I'm a part of, and it's the eternal kingdom of God. So while I thank God for my country, I'm far more apt to celebrate and worship with joy and exuberance and sacrifice and selflessness and serving to bring his kingdom to bear on this planet. And Jesus said, because there's this, this tension, this dynamic with this dichotomy, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And in John 17, when he prayed for us, his followers, he said, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, just the opposite. Leave them in the world so they can bring the kingdom of God to bear here on this earth. But in this tension, this dichotomy of these, these two kingdoms, for 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have had to live in these two worlds. Jesus said, you know, you're, you're not of this world. You're in it, but you're not of it. And 2,000 years ago, there was a, a small group of followers of Jesus who lived in the Roman Empire in the continent of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey, in a little town called Colossae. And they lived with this tension as well. And in this letter that we're studying, the, the book of Colossians, Paul points this out, and we saw this in the very first week, when he talked about these faithful, holy brothers who are in Colossae, in Christ, there's this tension here. You live in Colossae, but your life is in Christ. You reside in Colossae, but your reality is in Christ. Nero may be the emperor, but Jesus is our king. Rome may be that empire, but the kingdom of God is where we really belong. And so you, you see this, this, this tension there. You know, and we'll see here in a few minutes in Colossians 1. Uh, 13. He says, you have rescued us. You've delivered us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into this kingdom, the kingdom of the son whom you love. In Philippians 3.20, it says that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we dwell with these two kingdoms, and years ago, Chuck Colson wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. These two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, that there are times when there is tension and conflict between them. 
And there are times when the loyalties are, are, are tested on this. And there are times when the values of the world are different than the values of the kingdom. And the culture of this world is different than the culture of the kingdom. And in every one of those instances where there's any kind of tension, Paul will say in this letter, you always go with Christ. You always go with the kingdom of God. That which is significant, that which is eternal, that which brings glory to God. And he always comes back to, it's all about Jesus. Did I mention a few weeks ago that there's going to be an unbelievable sermon next week by Pastor Kip on this incredible passage out of Colossians 1? I think maybe possibly one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, and Kip is going to crush it next week. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. As we've seen already, that Paul just comes back to the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of of Christ. And we live in the kingdom of God as citizens of heaven. And our Lord is Jesus Christ. So today, as we're studying this, this letter, I want to pick up where we left off last week. And I know we're kind of going slow through chapter. We're going to spend five weeks in chapter one, then we're going to have to really speed up for the rest of the book and skip over lots of stuff. But I want to pick up where we, where we left off last week. A little quick review. This is a letter written by Paul. He's stuck in Rome in prison, technically. He's really under house arrest. He's detained in Rome. He can't leave. He'd like to go to Spain. This is his plan. I'm sure he'd love to come back to Asia and check on these churches that he planted. He'd probably like checking out Jerusalem. Maybe even head back to Tarsus, check on his aging mother. I don't know. But he's stuck in Rome. While he's in Rome for two years, not able to leave, this guy named Epiphras, who sounds like apparently heard the gospel in, in, in Ephesus, went to his hometown in Colossae, started a church, pastored the church, and comes to visit Paul while he's in prison. As he tells about this church, Paul writes the letter. And as we started last week, we see after the introduction, he goes in and he starts in verse 3 between chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 14. He writes this nonstop, run-on sentence. It's like he never comes up for error. There's no period in, in the original Greek. It's just one run-on sentence from chapter 3 to chapter 14. We covered half of it last week. We'll cover the other half today. But it starts off this way in Colossians 1, verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, that sounds like a, a pastoral thing to write. You know, we pray for you. We thank God for you. That seems like Christian, you know, platitude. That's, that's what you're supposed to say. But it's far more than that. I mean, he tells them why he thanks God for them, why they're thanking God. And this is what we looked at last week. Because they have this, this compelling faith in Jesus internally. And they have this complete love of Jesus externally. And they have this confident hope from Jesus eternally. And it's all built on the truth of God's word and God's grace. And he says, you guys are just flourishing. And he sets them up as this picture of this church. This is what it looks like to be a healthy, flourishing, growing church. With your faith and with your love and with your hope and the truth of God's word and his grace and then after he just tells them how, how he thanks God for how great they're doing, the second half of this run-on sentence, he talks about praying for them. Verse 9, he says this. For this reason. What reason? The fact that they're actually doing really well. The fact that they're growing in their faith, their love, and their hope. The grace and the, and the truth of God's word. For that reason, he says. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. You would think he'd say, well, boy, the Colossian church is doing great. We, don't, we can kind of ease up on our prayers. We need to pray for Corinth. Corinth always needs prayer. Let's double down on Corinth. No, he said, no, we heard you're doing fantastic. 
we're not going to back off on our prayers. In fact, because we've heard you're doing so well, we're going to pray even more. What I find fascinating in this little letter, and many of you have read it, and several have told me this weekend, you've, you've read through it, watched the video from the Bible Project, is that throughout this letter, Paul's in prison in Rome. Paul wants to be out. Paul feels like there's things God has called him to do. You would think he'd be pleading with them to pray for him, and yet he doesn't. Okay, there's one little place in chapter 4, I think verses 1 and 2, or anyway, early in chapter 4, where he says, yeah, yeah, pray for me. Pray that a door would be opened. But he's not praying for a prison door to be opened. In fact, he says, pray that a door of opportunity would be open so that I can share the gospel boldly as God has called me to. I mean, he's so selfless. He's not even thinking about himself. He's praying for them. And he's going, as we're going to see here, he begins to talk about what he will pray for. And it's interesting the things he doesn't tell them he's praying for and the things that he does. And what we will see in this is the depth and the goal of their prayers, because as we look into these six verses, you will see that there's a depth to his prayers. And my prayer is this, that as we study this today, as we look at this today, it will inform and inspire and encourage and challenge us to pray at a deeper level for ourselves, for our families, for our small group, for our church, for our world. And we are a pray first church here. We want, we want to cover everything in prayer. Our ministry's in prayer. We want our small groups praying. We want you praying as an individual. We want uh, you know, couples and families praying. We, want all, we just want to cover everything in prayer. Maybe our prayers need to go a little deeper. I was raised in, in church, raised in a home that prayed, and as many of you, and I'm grateful for the legacy. I'm grateful that my parents taught me to pray. And sometimes with children, we, we teach them to pray with these kind of memorable, short, rhyming type prayers or songs that it kind of, you know, age appropriate. I mean, I don't know if any of you ever sang the Johnny Appleseed song. Come on, we're from Washington. Oh, the Lord's been good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and the rain and the apple seed. Come on, you know what I mean? And, and what a great thing to teach kids. Listen, God provides, and he's good to us, and he gives us what we need, even the sun and even the rain. Even the rain, it's all good for us. Or may, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Doesn't quite rhyme, but close. I always say, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Because that rhymes. But, but how great to teach a child the, the goodness of God. I mean, we sing about that. He, he is good. And the greatness of God, he's the almighty and, and it gives us this heart of gratitude to, to instill these things. Our, our girls used to pray when they were little, little girls. They pray for, for sunshines and flowers and birds that sing. We thank you, Lord, for everything. Oh, what a beautiful prayer for sunshine to understand the God of the cosmos, that all, all of heaven declares the glory of God and, and, and the, the flowers that he's created, the beauty of this world. And this is my father's world and, and the birds that sing, even, the, even all of nature praises God and, and we give him thanks and gratitude. I mean, what a great thing to teach our children, these great deep theological truths in these simple little songs. Or maybe you prayed this one. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord. To say, what do we teach our kids? Don't close your eyes. You might die tonight in your sleep. Why do we do this to kids? No wonder they're terrified of the dark. No wonder we just pray. I'm going to die. So we have these, these childlike prayers, these childish prayers. 
And they're great foundational prayers. But there might be something wrong if we're still praying childish prayers years later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways away. And Maybe he would all say when I was a child, I, I prayed like a child. I'm not talking about childlike faith. We're supposed to have that. But childish prayers that can be shallow, can be simple, can be short-sighted. And maybe he says, I, I put childish prayers away. So as we tear this prayer apart, my hope is that we will see an example of a deep, deep prayer. What he does not pray for is what we often pray for one another and ourselves. He doesn't pray that they'll have an easy life. He doesn't pray that they'll be spared persecution. He doesn't pray that they'll get promoted and be prosperous and have all this power. He doesn't pray that they'll have all their hopes and wishes and dreams all accomplished and they'll be happy forever. He doesn't pray those things. Now, he's heard about them. He's never met them. He heard about them from Epiphras. And it's interesting because apparently Epiphras has been praying for them as well. If you'll let me jump really quick to the end of the book, because we may not have, may not ever get this far. But in, in Ephesians, or Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 says, Epiphras, who is one of you, he's from Col Colossae, he's one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, he sends his greetings, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. I mean, look at the intensity of that. I mean, he's grappling on your behalf. This is far different than he just throws up a Lord be with him and bless him while you're at it. Like he's wrestling in prayer for them. And then he says the specifics of what he's praying for that, that, that they would have. That you may stand firm in all the will of God. Mature and fully assured. He says, I, I want you to be rock solid. Not wavering, not falling, not, not, not drifting away. And not with what everything else is going on, but the will of God. And that you would be rooted and grounded, that you would mature and grow. That you'd be fully assured that you don't have to question, is Christ enough? Am I enough in Christ? That you would have the full assurance. And I just wonder, is, as Paul heard Epiphras praying for the Colossians, does Paul get his cues? Because the prayer we're going to look at reflects exactly what Epiphras has been praying for them. So, here's what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes or so. I want us to dissect this passage, these six verses. And in dissecting things, very often you take the very life out of them. But I want to go through it kind of line by line. And then at the end, I want to put them all back together. And hopefully they will breathe life into how we pray for ourselves and for others. So let's get after it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. We already started this a little bit. 1 verse 9 says, it's For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And here's, now he begins to tell them what he's specifically praying. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. We want you to know what God's will is for you, for your church, for your circumstances, for your city, for your life. And as he's praying this, you, you can just see he's praying for a purposeful life, that they would understand God's will, God's purposes for them 
what they were created for, what God has designed them to be a part of, that they would understand this. And when you begin to see this, and you put that in contrast with some of the ways that sometimes we pray, it may not be as purposeful. Now, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but if you're honest enough to, to uh, acknowledge this, and I'll ask you in a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, because mine will be up too, but have you ever analyzed your prayers and thought honestly thinking, you know, what I'm asking for is really kind of selfish? I mean, really, quite frankly, what I'm doing is it's like a wish list. Like I'm crawling up on Santa's lap and here's all the things I want. I mean, sometimes our prayers are like that. And if we're really honest, we're more interested in aligning God to our will. Like, God, here's, get on board with my thing here. I got, I got a plan and I need you on board with me on this one. And sometimes we will even try to spiritualize our greedy ask so that God will be saying, you know, that's, you're right, not a bad idea. And we just start, God, if you just help, God, if you could just help me win this lottery, do you know how many wells we could drill in Africa? I mean, God, this would be so beautiful. God, God, if you'll just, man, if you'll let me win that America's Got Talent thing, I mean, my platform for you would be, it would be amazing. It's all about you, God. It's not me. It's all about you. And, and, and if I could get that second house in Maui, I could help missionaries on furlough. And we just, you know, all that. Any of you honest enough say, yeah, sometimes my prayers are like that. Yeah, it's a good thing you guys are in church today. <laughs> Selfish, short-sighted prayers. Me too. It's like, God bless me. My kingdom come. My will be done. And Paul says, you know what I'm praying for? I'm praying that you would have the full knowledge of God's will. God's will. And then he goes on even further. He says, I'm asking God to fill you with the knowledge um, of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is how we're going to know God's will. Because sometimes <laughs> we can get off. It's amazing how easily we can justify and rationalize and say, this must be God's will because, and really it's motivated by our own selfish desires. He's saying, no, no, I want you to know God's will by all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's knowing the will of God through the word of God. If you ever question, is this God's will? Does it line up with God's word? Because if it doesn't, it's not God's will for you. To know the will of God through the, isn't that what Romans 12 says? Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know, God's word. Then, then you'll be able to test what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. Now, I don't know if, if when Paul writes this, he, he lines them up as a linear progression, but I love how these build on themselves. He says, I pray that you would have the knowledge, the full knowledge of God's will through this spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And maybe they go together. Because you can know God's will and not do it. See, knowing God's will is the knowledge part. But having that translate into how we live our life, that's the wise part. As long as we've already confessed and thrown our, our reputation away, how many of you have ever known what God's will in a circumstance, a situation, a relationship, some issue in your life. You've known what God's will is. You know clearly what God's word says. You know what his way would be, and you chose to do otherwise. Just, let's just be honest. And we are a wretched bunch. Yes, me too. And he says, and I want you to know his will and the wisdom to live that out. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 7? Anyone who hears these words of mine, like you know them, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
It's not just believing them. It's not just knowing them. It's not just memorizing them. It's not just agreeing with them. It's the wisdom to live them out, to submit to them, to allow God's will to be done in our lives. And then he says, and the understanding. And there's all different kinds of ways I suppose we could try to talk about what that even means. I think part of it is the understanding that that God's will is the best. Regardless of what we think, regardless of what our culture says, God's will is the best. My friend Bill Giovanetti, he's a pastor in Redding, California, a brilliant, brilliant man. I always give him credit for this. I ought to call him and ask him if he actually said it. Somehow I've got it stuck in my mind. We'll give him credit for this. But he made this statement, I believe. He said, there is nothing good for me outside of the will of God for me. Now, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe, honestly, that there's anything good for us outside of the will of God, we will always question God's goodness. We will always thank God's holding out on us, that, that maybe we know better than God. Yeah, I know God says this, but I think this would be better. Isn't that originally what happened in the garden? Here's God's will, but I think there's something better for me. I think God's not, not I, I don't know that I can trust him completely. And part of that understanding is coming to the place, and this is a mature thing where we say, God, I don't fully get it, and I'm not even sure I agree, but I'm going to trust that you know better than I do. Isn't that what happened with Jesus in the garden? When he pours out his heart and he pleads with God for a different outcome, and at the end, he understands. He says, but not my will. Your will be done. Paul just prays, I want you to know this purposeful life of living in the will of God, what God created you for. And not just a purposeful life, he prays for a pleasing life. A pleasing life. Now, not a life of pleasure. There's a big difference between a pleasing life and a life of pleasure. They lived in a culture that sought a life of pleasure. Hedonism says that pleasure is the highest good. All things should be gone after for pleasure, for self-indulgence, for satisfaction, all these things. We live in somewhat of that, that, that world as well. When pleasure is your highest good, it becomes your idol and your God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a life that is pleasing. And I just want to say, this verse 10 I could have spent the entire time on this. I, I, this. This verse is so amazing. He talks about the will of God, the knowledge and, and the, the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding, verse 10. And we pray that, pray this in order that. The reason we're praying for you to understand God's will and to live it is in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Some of your translations will say that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But that one verse right there, if we begin to pray that, if we begin to seek that, I want to walk in a manner worthy of you, Lord, and I want to please you in every way, would that not change everything? And, and maybe you can just talk about that. I mean, what does that even mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to live in a way that pleases him? I mean, there's not a thing I can do to be worthy of what he's done for me. I mean, the best I do is like filthy rags, I could never earn, I could never deserve, I could never be worthy. So what does that mean? How do I even live? How does that even work? And Paul says, kind of glad you asked. Let me give you some examples of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so it goes on. And look at the verbs here. Look at the verbs here. Bearing fruit, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. 
bearing and growing. This present tense imperative ongoing says you're bearing fruit. It's this continuation. You're growing in the knowledge of God. These things that are continuing. This is a life pattern. This is what the way you just live your life every day as you walk. And this whole thing of, of being fruitful in your life, that's a metaphor you find throughout Scripture. You know, when, when Jesus in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you will know them by their fruit. But you can see what God is doing within their life, the, the outcome of that. In John 15, that great passage where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And at the end of that little uh, piece there, he says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple, that there's something in your life that's, that's revealing that God's at work in you, transforming you, changing you, making a difference. That picture out of Psalm one that we've looked at, it's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season or Galatians five, where he talks about the fruit of the spirit. What the Spirit is bringing about in my life is love and this joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and self-control. This fruit in our life. And he says, and this is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That every single day, you just continually bear the fruit of God's work in your life. And, and growing, growing in the knowledge of God. <laughs> Can I just say, you will never fully accomplish growing in the knowledge of God. I don't care if you're raised in church, grew up going to Sunday school and VBS and CCD and BSF and any other initials you want to call things. You've been in small groups. You've been to seminary. You've written books. You will never, ever, ever plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. He's just that great. No matter how much you learn, there's so much more to learn. And the truth is, the more you know about God, you begin to realize how little you actually know about God. He says, and just have this life where you're growing, knowing more of his holiness, knowing more of his grace, knowing more of his love, knowing more of his justice, knowing more of his righteousness, just growing. Say, okay, all right, so that's what I've got to do. If I'm going to walk in the manner of, uh, worthy of the Lord, I'm going to please him every way, then I, then I need to bear fruit, and I need to grow, and I need to do these things, and I've got to keep doing them. No, 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 no. That puts it all on your shoulders. Look at the next verse. He says, verse 11, being, there's that ongoing deal, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That you are continually getting strength. You're depending on the strength from his power, from his glorious might. So you might be saying, okay, well, wait a second. This is a little confusing. How do you reconcile this? If I'm supposed to be doing all this, but God's power is supposed to be doing all that, how does all that work? I mean, in Ephesians, it says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. Okay, so it's God's power that's at work within us. And yet in Hebrews it says, make every effort you know, in your relationship. So, so, but that's my effort. So which is it? Is it God's power or my effort? And the answer is yes. Yes. Absolutely it is. I mean in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, God's power gives us, his power gives us everything we need for life and godliness. God's power does that. Two verses later, he says, so make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. His power gives us everything we need, so make every effort. In Philippians 2, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is on us. Work out, not work for. Work out your salvation. The very next verse, 
For it is God who wills and acts within us, works and acts within us to, to accomplish his good will. It's us and God. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ. You see, there's this beautiful cooperative partnership that God's power, we're dependent on God's power, on the power of his spirit. But it's up to us to keep in step. Colossians, or Galatians 5.25 says, since you live by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. God has provided this power for you. It's you and me submitting ourselves, surrendering, making every effort in his power to live this life. This beautiful, beautiful partnership that we have here together. All right, so he goes on. And again, he gives a why. Why is he praying all this? So that, praying all this, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. And I read that and I say, wait a second, stop for just a second. Great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks. These two don't go together in my mind. I mean, I don't want endurance and patience. I want easy and promptness. I don't have to endure this. I want it now. I don't want that. And, and then and this patient or the joyful giving thanks in the midst of when I need. See, you don't need endurance and patience when everything's going good, when, when things are easy, when everyone's cooperating. You don't need that then. You don't need endurance. You know, when, when you're going on a comfortable two-week vacation, you don't pray, God, give me endurance, unless you're being sarcastic or you have a whole bunch of kids. Just, you just don't pray this. God, I just, I just need to endure this time off of rest and relaxation on the beaches. I, no, you don't, you don't need the endurance in those kind of situations. You don't need patience when the people in your life are cooperative and your children do what you ask and your friends have no drama and people enter and exit the roundabout in an untimely, normal way. <laughs> you don't need patience in those situations. To have endurance or to need endurance and need patience means your circumstances are unpleasant and your people are frustrating. He says, and I'm praying so that you'll have great endurance because life is going to be unpleasant at times and patience because people are going to be frustrating at times and, not or, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. He's praying for this grateful life. This life where you're just grateful to God and it's easy. It's easy to live a grateful life when things are going well. I mean, what's not to like? That, that little prayer that our girls used to pray, for sunshine and flowers and birds that sing, we thank you, Lord, for everything. Why not? It's a bluebird day. This is it. The sun is out. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. What's not to like? How about when rain clouds and thistles and moles abound? I approach my Lord with a disapproving frown. It's not so easy to be thankful then. And then Paul just lays this out, and, and, and I've got to hurry here, but Paul just lays out in the last three verses of this where he tells them what he's praying for. He lays out in verse 12, 13, and 14, three things that they can always be joyful and thanking God for, and it goes for us as well. No matter what your circumstances, no matter the people in your life, these are three things that you will always be able to be joyful and thankful about. Verse 12, he says this. He says, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you. In the other two, he says, we and us. In this one, he says, you. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. 
You, remember he's talking to the people in, in Colossae, primarily Gentiles. They weren't a part of God's chosen people. They weren't a part of the inheritance of Israel. They weren't a part of this. They were outcasts. They were, they were excluded from this. They had no business being a part of this thing. But it was only because the Father qualified them. On their own, they don't belong. It's like a rescue mutt at an American Kennel Club dog show. You don't belong here. It's like the Clampets in Beverly Hills, that is. They don't belong there. It says, you, you Gentiles, let me just tell you something. And by the way, that's us as well. You don't belong here, but the Father has qualified. You didn't qualify for this. The Father qualified you. This is the grace and the goodness and the love of God. And not only that, he's not only qualified you, but you get a part of the inheritance. I mean, in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the Gentiles being, and I love the imagery, a wild olive shoot. It's a wild olive shoot. It's not one you want in your garden. These are the sucker shoots. You cut them off. You round up these things. You don't want wild olive shoots. He says, you are a wild olive shoot. But the Father grafted you in. You get to be a part. Romans chapter 8 says we've been adopted into sonship, so our, our inheritance is not just with the rest of the saints. We are joint heirs with Christ. And that's only because of the goodness of God. And he goes on in verse 13. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Now he includes himself. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was Israelite through and through. He was a man of the law. He was a Pharisee. He was legalistic, but he discovered the law can't save you. God came along and he says, and he rescued us. He delivered us from this dominion of spiritual darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of light. This picture, like we were prisoners of darkness and God rescued us and he brought us home. We didn't do that. God did that. And then in verse 14, it concludes, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption is by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his grace. He says, don't you understand? No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation, no matter the people in your life, you can always be grateful for these things. The Father has qualified you. You've got an inheritance. He's rescued you. You're part of the kingdom. He's redeemed you. The past is gone and you are forgiven. And all of this is done in Christ. It's what Paul comes back to again and again. It's all in Christ. It's the sufficiency of Christ. It's the supremacy of Christ. And what he's praying is that what had been done for them would continually be effective in them. This had been done for them in Christ on the cross. It's the finished work of Christ. It's the resurrected one. It had been done for them. And he says, I want this to be the reality in your life, continually ongoing. It's like he prays in Philippians 4 or Philippians 1, where he says, he, know it being common as he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, now I've dissected this thing down verse by verse. Let's put it all back together. And let's take a look at what this prayer would look like, not as a, oh yeah, we're seeing Paul write it to a church 2,000 years ago, but what could this prayer look like if today 
I prayed this deep prayer for myself. So I kind of rearranged some of the words, not the content. And I want to just read what this prayer would look like. And maybe it's a little deeper than some of the prayers we pray for ourselves and our family and our, others, our friends. God, I continually ask you to fill me with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that I may live a life worthy of you, Lord, and that I may please you in every way, continually, daily bearing fruit in every good work, continually, daily growing in the knowledge of you, God, continually, daily being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that, so that I might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified me to share in the inheritance in the saints in the kingdom of light. For you have rescued me from the dominion of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of the Son, the one that you love, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What if we prayed like that? What if we prayed that for ourselves? What if we prayed that over our families? What if we prayed that for our friends, for this church, for our world? Not just God be with them, God bless them. God help them to know your will. Truly understand that. To live in a manner that's pleasing to you, worthy. Walking in your power, submitting to your spirit. Joyfully thanking you for qualifying us for rescuing us, for redeeming us. It's a little bit of a deeper prayer. And maybe, maybe the challenge for us is this, that we would start praying along those lines, that God would bring about that transformation for his glory.